You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and we're happy to see you all here. Tonight, we're pleased to welcome back to the Pratt Library's Writer's Live series, Melvin Goodman, who has been here before, and his new book is Whistleblower at the CIA. Um, Mel's career as a, um, as a intelligence analyst at the CIA um, extended for 24 years, and he resigned in 1990 uh, quite abruptly, and he's been a critic of the CIA ever since, and he, that's what he's going to talk about this evening. Um, I like the quote on the back of the review by Daniel Ellsberg on the back of the book, and he says, Whistleblower at the CIA offers a fascinating glimpse into the secret behind-the-scenes world of U.S. intelligence. Mel Goodman's first-person account of the systematic manipulation of intelligence at the CIA underscores why whistleblowing is so important and why the institutional obstacles to it are so intense. Uh, Mel, also, after his um, career at the CIA, he was a professor of international relations at the National War College for 18 years, and he continues to teach uh, at, as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. Now we're very happy to have you here again at Pratt, and we look forward to hearing you talk about your book. And I hope you'll talk about your conversation with Daniel Ellsberg um, this summer in Berkeley. Sure. I'll do all those things. Thank you, Judy. It's good to be back. Um, I just signed a contract with City Lights for my next book, which is going to be called Trump's War on Intelligence. So maybe by the time that's out, we'll be back in your new building. Uh, and we can, we can try this again. Uh, let me tell you why I wrote the book and why I think uh, you all should read it. Uh, I don't think we've ever lived in a more perilous time uh, in terms of our democracy. Uh, after the election, the Washington Post changed its masthead to include the line, democracy dies in darkness. And if you don't have uh, whistleblowers, you're going to have uh, darkness. Uh, I do think whistleblowing is the key to investigative journalism, and investigative journalism is one of the keys to keeping our democracy in the kind of uh, safe condition that uh, the Founding Fathers worried about when they created this republic. And remember that famous uh, incident when Benjamin Franklin uh, left Constitution Hall in Philadelphia and someone shouted, what have you created in there? Uh, because the negotiations were all done in secret. And Benjamin Franklin said, we created a republic if you can keep it. Uh, and I think we're in a situation now where if we don't start to bolster the guardrails of democracy, we're going to lose what we have. 
Now, the case I would make for whistleblowing is a very simple one. When you think of what we've learned over the last uh, 40 years, since you mentioned the Vietnam series, uh, the Vietnam story, you think of a whistleblower such as Daniel Ellsberg. And when I did this uh, uh, conversation with Ellsberg uh, in Berkeley, where Daniel still lives and he's a rock star out there, so there were about 300 people at the church when we had our uh, conversation, um, Ellsberg told me something I didn't know. When he Xeroxed all of the Pentagon papers, hundreds and hundreds of pages, he also Xeroxed uh, all of the sensitive documents that were at the Rand Corporation, which was essentially a think tank uh, for the Air Force. And that book, uh, dealing with those other documents, and particularly our nuclear doctrine, and how close we came to using nuclear weapons in various confrontations, uh, will be coming out later this month. Uh, and I think it's going to be even more important than the Pentagon Papers. Um, when you think of the 1970s, uh, the fact the Washington Post has been living off of really one uh, whistleblower, Mark Bell. Uh, we all know Bob Woodward and we know Carl Bernstein, but without Mark Felt, uh, I don't know if there would be Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, they might still be working in the metro section of the Washington Post. And it's kind of interesting because if you go back to the 1970s, uh, when Bob Paulden was the chief of staff to Richard Nixon, when the leaks started getting into the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, Nixon said to Haldeman, do you know who the whistleblower is? Do you know who we're dealing with? And Haldeman says, yeah, I think so. Who is it? And he said, Mark Felt of the FBI. And Nixon's question, the only question he asked was, well, is he Jewish? And Woodward said, no, I think he's Catholic. And that was the end of the conversation. So they, they knew who the whistleblower was. And it was a whistleblower that essentially brought down uh, the Nixon administration. He got out of town before he could be impeached. Um, but it shows, again, the importance of having someone who was willing to correct or wrong. And that's my definition of whistleblower. Uh, it's someone who confronts uh, criminal activity or transgression or impropriety of one kind or another and takes it to uh, the next level. Uh, Vietnam, which was a case of incredible corruption, the Vietnam series, Ken Burns series, got off to a very good, very bad start for me because he talked about the good people who were trying to make good decisions. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> Vietnam was nothing but one lie after another. And if you look at the world of intelligence and U.S. Uh, military activity, Think of how many times we went to war on the basis of lies or corruption of one kind or another. The Mexican-American War in the 1840s was based on lies. The Spanish-American War in the 1890s was based on lies. Vietnam and, of course, uh, Iraq. Uh, and when you think about uh, Iraq, we would have benefited greatly early on in the war if uh, there had been whistleblowers to expose the fact that the intelligence that was used to justify going to war against Iraq and all of the argument about the weapons of mass destruction uh, was created out of whole cloth. Uh, these were all lies. Now, whistleblowing has gotten more controversial in recent times because of the whistleblowing of two people who I continue to defend, uh, even though these cases are not clear-cut. 
Uh, you're familiar, I'm sure, with both of them. One is Edward Snowden, uh, and the other is Chelsea Manning. And the reason why these events are, and these cases of whistleblowing are so controversial is they released more than they needed to in order to make the case they had to make. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Snowden and Manning, and Snowden has admitted that he broke laws, and Manning has also admitted that she broke laws, and she paid a heavy price for that until her sentence, um, until she received clemency from President Obama, who I think must have been feeling some guilt about the fact that she had served such a long sentence in the first place, uh, given the fact that she never should have been sent into a war zone, given the personal and psychological problems that Chelsea Manning uh, was dealing with. But when Manning re released very important information about the war crimes that were being committed in Iraq, she also released hundreds of thousands of State Department cables. Uh, these cables were not sensitive in terms of American national security. They didn't do damage to American national security. But it made her case less than honorable because it did uh, involve areas of intelligence and policy that had nothing to do with war crimes. Edward Snowden did the same thing. Uh, I think Edward Snowden exposed very important laws that were being broken, as well as amendments to the Constitution, uh, dealing with illegal searches and seizures. Uh, and even someone such as Eric Holder, uh, when he was no longer Attorney General, admitted that Edward Snowden was a public servant, uh, because the laws he uh, broke were not as serious as the, the laws that were being broken that he exposed, and that was, of course, the massive surveillance of the National Security Agency. Uh, John Kiriakou, who was also a colleague at the uh, CIA, uh, ended up serving seven years uh, in jail, uh, mainly because he was the first person from the CIA to talk about the torture and abuse uh, that was being uh, conducted. And even Senator Dianne Feinstein, when she uh, released the Torture and Abuse Report, the very comprehensive study of American practices during the War on Terror, uh, she strongly felt that there had been a whistleblower within the CIA who planted very sensitive documents within the archives that could be found uh, by investigators. And it's very important to know that when Dianne Feinstein did that report, she was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she received no support uh, whatsoever uh, from the Republicans uh, on the Intelligence Committee, either the members of the committee or even the staff members of the committee who weren't permitted to work on the torture and abuse report, which has now been called back and probably will never see uh, light of day. Remember, we're still waiting, and even though this is the month we're supposed to get it, for certain documents from the Kennedy assassination from 1963. Uh, that are sensitive to the CIA, and the CIA director, Mike Pompeo, is doing his best uh, to keep these documents from uh, getting out of the archives. My own uh, example of whistleblowing was not as dramatic or as profound as uh, what Mark Felt did with uh, Watergate or uh, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, but it did, did deal with deceit within the intelligence community. And that was the phony intelligence that was being created in the 1980s when William Casey was the CIA director and Robert Gates was his deputy to uh, serve the interests of the Reagan administration. Remember, when Reagan came into office in 1981, uh, he had dedicated 
his defense policy to the biggest increase in defense spending in peacetime that we had ever seen in our history. And, and that's still true to this day. Well, to increase defense spending when you're not at war, you need to have a threat. You need to have um, some perilous state for United States national security. And what Reagan focused on was the Soviet threat. And it was Casey's job and Bob Gates' job to distort the position of the Soviet Union. And when you think about it, here was the Soviet Union in the 1980s on the verge of collapse. They finally dissolved in 1991. Uh, but KC and Gates devoted themselves to creating a Soviet threat that was 10 feet tall in order to get the defense spending that Ronald Reagan wanted. Uh, and this is essentially what I fought for about three or four years before I decided to go to the National War College and uh, take my arguments about Soviet policy uh, to the military, where I thought they would have some impact. Uh, but it was in 1991 when George H.W. Bush nominated Gates to be uh, the CIA director that I decided to testify on the Hill. And that's what I did in October of uh, 1991, um, making it uh, clear in terms of rhyme and verse of which documents were being falsified, what was being politicized uh, at the CIA. Uh, and I think this was uh, a major contribution to the debate on the role of intelligence analysis, what intelligence is designed to do, and how it can be uh, misused. Now, when you look at journalism, and particularly investigative journalism, it's, it's pretty clear that very good investigative journalists have been uh, very protective of whistleblowers. I'm talking about courageous journalism. I'm talking about a very small number of journalists at the major uh, newspapers. Uh, people like Seymour Hirsch, writing in The New Yorker, remember the work he did on My Lai uh, in Vietnam, or the um, Abu Ghraib um, uh, scandal, what was taking place in military prisons during the Iraq War. Uh, someone like James Risen at The New York Times, or Greg Miller at The Washington Post. Uh, these are people who are protective of whistleblowers, rise and risk a jail term in order to protect his sources uh, with regard to U.S. policy toward uh, Iran. And I think this is extremely important. But if you look at the editorial pages of these major newspapers, uh, you'll find that too often editorial writers, particularly the Washington Post, I, I have a special beef with the Washington Post in this regard, have been very critical of whistleblowers. So if you look at the editorial writing of the Washington Post under Fred Hyatt, or the important editorial uh, writers on the op-ed page, people such as Michael Gerson and Richard Cohn and Ruth Marcus and David Ignatius, they've been incredibly critical of whistleblowers. Michael Gerson, who should never have been hired by the Washington Post in the first place because I thought he disqualified himself as a speechwriter for George W. Bush, and it was Michael Gerson who wrote one of the worst speeches Bush ever gave, the Access of Evil speech from January uh, 2002, in which he grouped Iran, Iraq, and North Korea uh, in an axis that was trying to undermine the interests of the United States. Here were three countries who had very little to do with each other. Iran and Iraq had fought a war for 10 years in the 1980s. 
uh, North Korea had limited contacts uh, with Iraq. They had some clandestine arrangements with uh, Iran. Uh, but the idea of access of evil was, again, totally made up out of whole cloth. And then when Michael Gerson more recently gets to talk about whistleblowers, he refers to them as nutjobs, uh, who have no interest in improving the uh, national security or stability of the United States. Richard Cohn wrote a column on Chelsea Manning where he referred to her as a cross-dressing Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, Ruth Marcus wrote about Edward Snowden's unattractive personality, someone who never fit in. She had never met Edward Snowden. She knew nothing about Edward Snowden. And David Ignatius did the same thing when he talked about Snowden as an intelligence uh, defector and not a legitimate whistleblower. So even though reporters have been very supportive, the best of the reporters, the editorial writers have not, and particularly at the Washington Post. My own example with the New York Times, I think, was rather telling. And that was when I was testifying in October of 1991. The White House tried to uh, compromise my testimony uh, by leaking malicious stories about me that were totally made up. And I got a call from two reporters, one from Time Magazine and one from the Washington Post, Ben Weiser, who's now with the New York Times warning me that the White House was sending out all sorts of spurious material. So I started leaking uh, material. I thought, you know, two can't play that game. Uh, and I picked the two important papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Ben Weiser of the Post, uh, and Elaine Cialino of the New York Times. And halfway through the hearings, it was interesting that Elaine Cialino stopped reporting on the material that I had given her and started writing very unbalanced pieces that were essentially defending the case that Bob Gates was making to um, get his confirmation as CIA director. Uh, So when the hearings were over, I called Elaine and asked if she wanted to have lunch. I had an agenda. And I just uh, observed to her that, you know, halfway through, after days of taking my information, you stopped taking it. And she said, well, it was pretty clear to me that halfway through the hearings, Bob Gates was going to get confirmed. He would go to the CIA as a director of central intelligence and be a source. You would go back to teaching at the National War College, and I'd probably never call you again. And she never did call me again. But it shows what journalists will do too often to protect sources that has really nothing to do with their mission of informing uh, the American people. Now, the reason why this is so important and why whistleblowing is so important is because we're living in a period of incredible uh, instability. Uh, we have never had the White House in the hands of someone, uh, well, just quote Senator Bob Corker, a member of his own party, who's talked about the lack of competence and the lack of stability of this particular individual. I've got a psychiatrist coming into my class at Hopkins in two weeks who's going to ignore the Goldwater rule that was. Uh, put forth by the American Psychiatric Association in which you're not allowed to talk about someone you've never examined. This particular psychiatrist, who used to work at the CIA before he started teaching at George Washington, uh, has been fighting the gold water rule, and he's going to talk about the malignant narcissism of uh, Donald Trump. But what I feel we need to do is make sure that the so-called guardrails of democracy that the press keeps telling us are working, and I have my doubts about that, uh, are bolstered. Now, when I talk about the guardrails of democracy, 
and when you're dealing with intelligence, there are two areas that are extremely important, and they deal with the investigations that are going on today in terms of the role that Russians played in the 2016 election and whether or not there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian leadership. And that is the importance of oversight within the intelligence community. Remember, the CIA was created in 1947, but it took 30 years before there was any congressional oversight of the Central Intelligence Agency. And my argument has always been, if you're going to have a secret agency, a secret bureau within a democracy, you're going to need uh, legitimate oversight. And for 15 years we had that, from the 1970s until the confirmation of Bob Gates. But if you look at oversight now, uh, it's been thoroughly politicized. Uh, the activities of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees are just as partisan and politicized as any other uh, committee. That's why the investigation of the Trump campaign and the Russian hacking has really, I think, hit a serious uh, roadblock. It certainly has in the House, where the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Nunes, has acted as a stooge for the White House. And even in the Senate, which is being more careful with its public relations, you have the Senate chairman, uh, Richard Burr, the Republican from North Carolina, uh, really moving very slowly in the investigation and essentially acting as a defense attorney uh, for the Trump administration. And Mark Warner of Virginia, I think, is doing his best to move these committee hearings along, but a minority party has very little clout within a committee investigation. They don't have the right of subpoena. Uh, they don't have the right of calling uh, specific witnesses that they would like. Everything goes through the chairman. So the oversight that should take place of the intelligence community and of impropriety within the government is clearly not functioning. Now that's external oversight from outside the intelligence community. Inside the intelligence community, you have uh, the Office of the Inspector General. Uh, and until 1989, that is more than 40 years after the CIA was created, you did not have an Inspector General, statutory Inspector General, that is appointed by the President, uh, serving within the Central Intelligence Agency itself. Uh, and this was a very uh, effective office. Uh, my wife worked in that office and was the director of uh, inspections for a long period of time. But in the Obama administration, and it, it was rather disheartening to see Obama, who had a Harvard Law degree and taught constitutional law, do so much damage to the Office of the Inspector General. Uh, in fact, Obama, when you look at Obama, he's the one who dealt uh, serious setbacks to the role of whistleblowers, uh, treating whistleblowers as if they were committing espionage and there were acts that were thrown into court using the Espionage Act from 1917, which was passed by Woodrow Wilson, uh, his presidency, during World War I, that wasn't designed to apply to legitimate uh, whistleblowing. So with very weak House and Senate intelligence committees and very weak um, inspector generals within these offices, it's very difficult to make sure agencies or departments, particularly those that uh, thrive on secrecy, to do the job they need uh, to do. So again, if we're going to bolster our democracy, uh, we're going to deal with uh, the, this particular administration uh, that is doing so much damage, not only domestically in terms of regulatory policy, but certainly in terms of our foreign policy. Uh, we need these institutions and we need protections.
for whistleblowers. Now let me say one final thing and then throw it open because I'm sure there are a lot of questions and comments that you all uh, want to make. Uh, there's a lot of concern right now about the role Russia played uh, during the election. Uh, and I think it's quite clear that Russia was involved in hacking and using social media to advance the candidacy of Donald Trump uh, and to destroy any chance that Hillary Clinton could become president of the United States. I don't think this activity was decisive in any way. Uh, if I had to analyze the various reasons why Hillary Clinton lost, I would start with her emails and James Comey's handling of those emails, which I thought uh, ignored uh, the laws and the traditions of the FBI and the Justice Department. And I wouldn't even put uh, Russian hacking as a major factor in her election uh, defeat. And the problem with this current emphasis on the role Russia played, and I think a certain element of Russian hysteria that we're seeing and dealing with Russia right now, is we're ignoring what is really important. And that is the gerrymandering that's being uh, conducted uh, in this country. And right now, we have a very uh, important case that's before the Supreme Court dealing with the gerrymandering that took place in Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin is a classic case you know, it's a state that Hillary Clinton lost narrowly, along with Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, which really summed up why she lost that election uh, in 2016. But in Wisconsin, you had a clear case where in the last election, uh, Republicans made up 48% of the vote, but when you look at the state assembly that was elected, 60 of the 99 seats went to Republicans. Well, to me, there's no better... Uh, example, a more dispositive example of gerrymandering and the damage of gerrymandering than what we saw uh, in Wisconsin. Yet you have the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who's made it clear in terms of referring to the gobbledygook explanations he's getting from lawyers. Uh, that's Robert's word, not mine, gobbledygook. Uh, it's not clear that the court is going to move uh, to overturn the gerrymandering that's taken place. And of course, uh, here in Maryland, we don't have a good case to make because one of the worst examples of gerrymandering in the entire country is what the Democrats did right here uh, in the state uh, of Maryland. Um, but in terms of where we are now as a country, uh, when you look at this domestic activity, uh, voter suppression, uh, the fact that we didn't have voter protection laws that were passed in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, particularly during the Johnson administration. A lot were being observed in the breach in this uh, last election. And if you look at foreign policy, where you've seen a militarization not only of the national security process, but of foreign policy uh, itself, uh, I think the founding fathers would be aghast uh, if they realized the United States had reached a point where we're counting on general officers and retired general officers to be the adults in the room for our political administration. That is not what the Founding Fathers had in mind when they carefully put together the system we are operating uh, under. So if we're going to understand uh, the damage that's being done in domestic affairs, in regulatory uh, policy, in environmental policy, uh, in foreign policy, I think we're going to need whistleblowers. We're going to need someone who's willing to take a story uh, to a journalist, and we're going to need courageous journalists who are willing to deal with these stories.
So with that, let me throw it open to your comments or questions and uh, see where we can go with this. Yeah. Speaking about the courageous journalists, uh, changes in the media for uh, billionaires to take control of both newspapers and networks uh, who have a political agenda uh, has an effect, and, and perhaps uh, word would be communicated that they would not like journalists in their operation to uh, support a whistleblower of a given kind. Um, and is that something you see as, as becoming more endemic, uh, pervasive? I mean, it's uh, Rupert Mur Murdoch, uh, Sinclair, TV, uh, 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 Washington Post was based on, so I'm not sure what his political agenda is and whether he would be uh, as open to supporting such journalists as in the past. Well, in the case of the Washington Post and Bezos, um, I have a lot of quarrels with the Washington Post, but Bezos hasn't changed the editorial policy of the Washington Post. Bezos' Bezos's idea is to take the Washington Post and mount it as a, as a digital uh, newspaper, and he's done it in an effective way, and he's making a lot of money for the Washington Post. But the editorial policy hasn't changed. Uh, the problem is essentially what you're talking about, that too many newspapers and too many television uh, stations are now in the hands of, of very few people. Uh, and the country has become so um, partisan and uh, divided that if you're on the left, you don't understand what's being written on the right, and if you're on the right, you pay attention to, you pay no attention to what's written on the left. Uh, so the left will read the New Republic and the Nation, and the right will stick uh, with the national uh, review in their uh, journals, and there's very little uh, communication. Uh, that's why what's just happened in the past 10 days, when you look at uh, the remarks made within the Republican Party, John McCain, Bob Corker, and today Jeff Flake, uh, who are talking about the debasement of the American government, or McCain talking about the need to get back uh, to a Senate that's a, a real uh, hall of the debate and discussion, um, but I don't see anyone stepping up behind them. You know, in a, in a sense, they are whistleblowers. And what I find in whistleblowing, and I saw this when an outstanding whistleblower, Sally Yates, remember when Sally Yates uh, was fired from the Justice Department and testified on the Hill on um, May the 8th of this year, a month before Comey did. Essentially, she was acting as a whistleblower and got very little support, I thought, from the American press. You know, within 24 hours, the whole Yates story had, had disappeared uh, from the airwaves. Yeah? Have you worked with uh, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now? Yeah. Has that been a satisfying experience? Well, Amy, Amy's outstanding, but you know, how many Amy Goodmans are out there? What I found in uh, my work with uh, Progressive Radio, I do a lot of work with Pacifica. Amy's show is on Pacifica. Uh, Pacifica is now down to, I think, four or five stations. It's been five for a long time. Five, okay, so it's Houston, LA, San Francisco, Washington, and New York. I, I think the New York station is in a lot of trouble. 
and I've done work with all of those stations, but I found liberals do not do a very good job of supporting these institutions. The right and the far right certainly know how to fund the outlets they're interested in, whether they're press outlets or media outlets or TV uh, outlets. They don't ask for anything in return. They're basically putting out seed money to let their word get out there. Uh, that's why I think Trump is not the problem. Trump is a symptom of a much larger problem, and that's the fact that 63 million people uh, saw him as a preferable option. Uh, last year, which tells you something about the political direction of this country, and particularly something I've always worried about, the cynicism in American politics. Uh, and I'm not going to compare the United States to the Soviet Union, but when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, uh, cynicism had become endemic in the Soviet Union. You had people who no longer believed their leaders. Well, I think we're in a situation in this country where our leaders don't have a lot of credibility. It was kind of interesting to me that if you look at two political parties, one was captured by a candidate for New England who wasn't a Democrat, he was an independent until he had to register for the election, who captured the imagination on the left, and then Donald Trump on the right, who's not an ideologue in any way, he's not a Democrat or a Republican, uh, as far as I can understand what he's trying to do. But he captured the sentiment of 63 million people. That's, that's alarming to me. I know that you know H.L. Mencken from Baltimore said never underestimate the stupidity of the American people, but you know I just came back from spending a month in Europe, and Europeans are stunned. They never thought that Americans could elect the kind of government. Every system that I've been exposed to, including Russia, where you have Zhirinovsky, you'll have a political clown, but they don't make him the president uh, of that particular country. On that note, I, I'd just like to say that on the morning after the election, when we went to, you know, pulled the covers up under our chin, pretty much confident that we were going to find a first woman president of the United States, was so surprised to find out that, that um, Trump had won. The first thing I thought of was the incident of Michael Connell. Are you familiar with Michael Connell, who worked with Carl Rove to change the numbers during the 2000? election in Ohio. Mm. Uh, perhaps, uh, just, just to reference, in 2003, there, uh, Bush had a big powwow at his ranch in Texas, and at the end of it, the, um, the guy who was the governor of Ohio and the president of the Republican National Committee, I think, was the same person, mm. and he emerged from this meeting and he said, I guarantee that I'm going to be able to deliver Ohio in 2004, and as we all were, we're all big kids here, we all remember 2004, um, there was many discrepancies with the number of votes reported versus the number of registered voters and mm. so on and so forth. Michael Connell, who was an Ohio resident, worked with Carl Rove to send those numbers down through Chattanooga, change them, and send them back for reporting, and he had been subpoenaed and was going to talk, and um, he'd gotten the subpoena like right before the Christmas holidays, and he was flying back to Akron, where he's from, in his private plane, which he took off from Montgomery Airfield, Montgomery County Airfield, and crashed into a residential neighborhood in Akron, Ohio, which clearly, to me, anyways, that was absolutely like um, Wellstone, you know, mm -hmm. political yeah. assassination, but. 
I don't believe for a minute, and I know that, I, I mean, I don't know, but I seem by all reports that Trump also was very surprised to find out that his numbers prevailed at the end of the day in, on election day. And I just don't believe that they're legitimate numbers. And all this investigation is, you know, look over here while we do this stuff over here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just don't think anybody's looking at the right information. Yeah. Yeah. Going to your field of expertise, what is intelligence gathering? Thank you. And how does it differ from spying? Yeah, question deals with intelligence gathering versus spying or espionage. Uh, when the CIA was created in 1947, uh, Harry Truman made it clear he wanted an intelligence organization that collected intelligence and analyzed intelligence for policymakers, for decision makers. And when I lectured at the Truman Library, I guess it's been three years now, I got a copy of the note that uh, Truman wrote. It's in his own hand. Uh, in 1963 because he was so appalled with what Eisenhower and Kennedy had done to the Central Intelligence Agency, turned it in, into a cloak and dagger organization. And of course Eisenhower made the first move in that direction by agreeing to overthrow the government of Iran in 1953, Operation Ajax. So Truman wanted intelligence and an analysis of intelligence. Operations, clandestine operations or espionage or even more covert action, which is um, conducting activities that uh, tries to hide the hand of the United States so you have plausible denial, uh, is not what Truman wanted. He knew it would be a part of any intelligence organization, but he didn't want it to become dominant. So when you look at espionage, you're looking at actual acts of clandestine uh, conduct, clandestine policy. In the extreme form, it would be political assassination, uh, what went on against Fidel Castro over a period of time, starting with the Eisenhower administration and continuing in the Kennedy, Kennedy administration. And I don't think it's widely known. It was even pursued by Lyndon Johnson, even in the wake of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why the CIA is still trying to hold back these documents from 1961, uh, 62, and 63 is I think they're going to be very embarrassing to the CIA because the, the Moscow, the uh, station in Mexico was well aware of Lee, of um, um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, his actions in Mexico, his travels to Cuba, and his contacts with Soviet officials. Uh, I still think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone uh, but the investigation was not a thorough investigation, and they went in there with an assumption, which you should never do an investigation, and tried to find evidence to suit the assumption that he did act alone. Uh, so the CIA probably had a good idea of who Lee Harvey Oswald was, and this is not material that got into, um, well, the, the law enforcement chain, uh, the FBI chain, I think these documents are going to be embarrassing, but we should know what they are. They're part of American history. They deal with activities, some of which were conducted in the name of the United States, and it's like torture and abuse. We need to know uh, what the United States has sponsored. That's what citizens should be about, understanding this activity. Yeah? Um, what about uh, the horrible influence of money uh, in politics and in the media, where uh, 
our best journalists uh, are forced to suppress things uh, given uh, a threat of losing advertisers and that sort of thing. And then on, in politics, uh, you, you see uh, perhaps excellent lawyers and, and excellent professionals uh, be, be uh, <laughs> controlled more by uh, uh, money for their campaign uh, or from pressure politically above given the, the overall money uh, at risk. Uh, so they then bend their uh, personal uh, beliefs and, and vote the party way or so forth. It's, it seems like the big money, as, as uh, Citizens United uh, completely blew the doors off and, and allowed, uh, has, has really made the country much worse. Mm. Well, I think there's no question that money in politics has had a corrupting uh, impact. I think we know that. I think we know that Citizens United uh, turned over some basic principles of American uh, governance that has worked to the detriment of uh, democratic uh, interests. So until we can get some reversal within the courts, uh, until uh, activism and resistance uh, finds its way into the judicial system, it's going to be very difficult to, to deal with that. But it's still up to individuals. Uh, there's, there's no reason for the National Rifle Association to have the impact that it has, given the attitudes that we see in polling on American attitudes toward gun control. Uh, they should be able to stand up to these organizations. Just one minor follow-up. It, it, it seems on many occasions, for example, on gun control and, and uh, other matters, that uh, you see people you know, like climate change. You know not all Republicans serving in Congress are uh, as blind and, and so forth as Trump and, uh, and others in his administration uh, demonstrate. But yet they, they all vote in USTA for policies that are contrary to what's needed for climate change. Yeah, well, the situation with climate control, to me, or climate change is, is typical in that I don't think anyone uh, can dismiss the evidence that we have in the, uh, the evidentiary basis for what is happening uh, in the atmosphere. The reason why Republicans oppose any legislation or any international agreements has nothing to do with the science. It has to do with the fact that it would take large government to deal with the problem. Private corporations can't deal with the problem of the environment. It will take government to do that. Their mission is to reduce the size of the government. The irony of this to me is if you've, I don't know how many of you have been following the, the Communist Party conference in, in Beijing, where you have an extremely effective Chinese leader uh, who's now probably the most powerful leader we've seen in China, uh, since Mao in the 1960s, and certainly since Deng Xiaoping in the 1970s, who's now taking international leadership of the role of climate. You know, he's the one who went to Davos, uh, the forum in Switzerland, and talked about globalization, which Steve Bannon is fighting. Uh, the idea of fighting globalization is like fighting the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. You know, it just can't be done. It's a fact of life. Uh, but now the, the United States, which is in, t in total disarray, uh, has allowed Xi Jinping to take over international leadership on very important issues. And, and we're going to pay a price for that. And I think that's what John McCain was trying to say 
when he gave that very important speech last week in, in Philadelphia when he got the Liberty uh, Award. And it's a shame that uh, it took his uh, illness, the brain tumor he's dealing with, for him to adopt causes he should have been supporting right along because I thought his base in Arizona was kind of safe. He wasn't going to be uh, challenged the way a court could in Tennessee or now Jeff Flake has said he's not going to run again because he's afraid of a primary challenge. Um, but they're going to need some support. Yeah? I find, in my own experience, uh, and those I've talked to, I've talked to Ellsberg, I've talked to uh, Thomas Drake from the National Security uh, Agency, who Obama went after with the Espionage Act. Uh, George W. Bush passed on the Drake case. He left it there for uh, Barack Obama to pursue, and darn if he didn't. Uh, I find there's a certain naivete on the part of whistleblowers. They seize an issue. Uh, I think there's a personality type, there's an anti-authoritarian personality type that allows someone to become a whistleblower. And you're very naive about the political consequences. I was certainly naive. Here I was working for the Department of Defense as a professor at the National War College, and what I was doing was throwing myself in front of a president who had nominated a CIA director. Uh, and I realized when I looked around, I didn't have any people in back of me for support. The commandant of the War College called me in um, and said, you know, uh, we, without using precise words, he made it clear that he wasn't comfortable with the fact that I was going to be testifying uh, in the Senate Intelligence Committee against the President's nomination. And I said, well, I've been subpoenaed. And then he made a big mistake. He said, well, just because you've been subpoenaed doesn't mean we don't have lawyers at the Pentagon. Uh, who can't get you out of that subpoena. And without knowing what the legal basis for this was, I just reacted by saying, do you know you can get into a lot of trouble by uh, threatening someone who's been subpoenaed? Well, it turns out that later there are laws to protect people uh, who've been subpoenaed, but I needed that kind of uh, protection because you're going into an incredibly hostile uh, environment. Uh, and one thing I learned is Democrats do a very good, a very poor job of protecting their witnesses. And we have got the best example of that was a month after I testified. Remember the Clarence Thomas case and Nina Hill. Look what a bad job Democrats, particularly Joe Biden, but also the late Ted Kennedy did, in protecting Anita Hill. And I didn't get the advice I should have gotten from people who I know were very supportive of what I was doing. People like Bill Bradley from New Jersey, Sam Nunn from Georgia, uh, Howard Metzenbaum for, from uh, Ohio, uh, people who detested Bob Gates and didn't want him to be the CIA director. Well, these individuals or their staff assistants should have been helping me with my testimony. And I should have shown my testimony to a lawyer. So it's, it's really the naivete of uh, a whistleblower. Uh, Tom Drake uh, was stunned to find out he was going to be pursued under the Espionage Act. Uh, and faced at least a 35-year jail sentence. Uh, and he lost everything. He's now working in my neighborhood in Bethesda in an Apple store. Uh, because once you lose your security clearances in the government, if you work in the national security field, uh, you're not employable. You know, there's no place to go. And people are very uh, critical of Edward Snowden for leaving the country. 
uh, as part of his active whistleblowing. Well, the reason why he left, his con left the country because he saw what happened to Thomas Drake within the National Security Agency. And the sad commentary on all of this is Edward Snowden is a lot safer living in Moscow than he is living in Washington. Uh, and that's a sad commentary on what's happened to uh, the political system in our own country. Yeah. Um, after Trump was elected, there, there was some optimism, even though things like the EPA pages and climate change were being taken down and other masking of, of reality, that this alt government employees would be doing whistleblowing, doing, you know, telling us what's really going on, even though they officially couldn't. Has that, that doesn't seem to have borne fruit. I don't see much out of that, but I do. I am aware that people are, are resisting. And there's, a, you know, there's a movement or a cause that they can adopt. So what, what would you recommend for government employees who know things that, that lots of are saying? Well, in the national security field, you have no protection. Whistleblowing uh, legislation does not protect anyone in national security doesn't protect any uh, contractor or consultant in, in national security. And when you look at that field, uh, it's made up for the most part because of the damage Bush did to the government. A lot of work the government used to do is now done by private consultants and, and contractors. Uh, there are people at the EPA who are leaking important information about the damage uh, that Pruitt is doing to the scientific community at EPA and keeping them from testifying in cases and taking people out of their areas of expertise. Uh, we see this at the Interior Department. Uh, but you have to remember, and I don't know why you were so optimistic in the uh, wake of the election of Trump, because I saw nothing to be optimistic about. Only that the whistleblower or the alt-government was starting to appear, that people were... Well, when you say alt-government, you sound like you're approaching the statement of the deep state. No, no, more... more yeah, that's a very dangerous was, conspiratorial yeah, way of... No, someone who was in the enforcement <coughs> role but was being told, oh, you can't go after this big company. Mm -hmm. And they, they would share that information publicly. So yeah. it is whistleblowing, but it's more of... There are very few people in any uh, example that I can think of that are willing to risk... Uh, their position, their profession, their reputation by engaging in whistleblowing. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to explain what's involved here, uh, but when I uh, testified in 91, uh, I was joined by two people who had already left the CIA. Um, so I had people who were filing sworn affidavits on my behalf. Including a woman in 1991, so I married her in 1993. I was that appreciative of the support she was giving. That's her sister, that's Lana, so on. Um, but it's true. So, as I, the point I made about this being a very lonely endeavor, I, I would emphasize that. Jerry? Yeah, uh, since your testimony in 1991, have you had any communication or other contact with Bob Gates? Or has there been any interaction between the two of you at all at some other venue? No. Nothing. Um, I reviewed his books uh, and published the reviews. I think he owes me a review of mine, and I'm still I'm still waiting for that review. But in the in the whistleblowing book, I spent a chapter 
basically outlining my differences with him. And remember, this is someone who was a close friend. The families were close. Uh, and when I decided to oppose him, this was a very uh, difficult step uh, to take on personal grounds and professional grounds. What was the nature of his book, and what was the gist of your comments on his book? Um, well, the two he wrote two memoirs, one in the shadows, uh, basically his role as a CIA official during various administrations, and then the book that he wrote more recently called Duty, which is essentially his uh, description of uh, his activities as Secretary of Defense. And you can imagine the shock uh, as someone who supported Barack Obama on every possible level when I realized Obama was going to be keeping Bob Gates as Secretary of Defense. I can understand why by George W. Bush appointed him because the Bush family has been very protective of Bob Gates. And I think the reason for that was, I thought, uh, I think Bob Gates knows a lot about Iran-Contra and even knows a lot about the involvement of George H.W. Bush uh, in Iran-Contra, which has never come to light. And let me say something about investigations, and this is not a digression. Uh, I know we're all counting on the Mueller investigations uh, to come to some conclusion that will be damaging to Trump. Two caveats about that. One, counterintelligence investigations, as you probably know, take forever. Uh, Iran-Contra took about six years. Uh, so I don't know how long it's going to take Mueller to actually get to the bottom of uh, the Russian hacking and whether or not there was collusion of the Trump people with, with the Russian uh, leadership. Uh, I don't think these investigations even find out everything that needs to be determined. Iran-Contra, after six to eight years, didn't find out how deep the corruption was within the uh, Reagan administration of Iran-Contra. Uh, I thought the uh, investigation of the Kennedy assassination was inadequate, and that's why conspiracy theories have held on so long. It's just not because of the movie that Oliver Stone made that I thought was outrageous, uh, but it was on fertile ground because uh, of the, the Dulles investigation, the Warren investigations, were just not thorough enough. So it's uh, it's disappointing. Yeah. What do you take to a journalist to validate what you want to expose to them, and how do they know that what you're saying is true? Well, it's up to the it's up to the journalist to trust his own instincts, and it's up to the individual at some point to have a track record of what he takes to a journalist. Is it papers? Uh, is it copies? I mean, what is it that you're taking to him? Up well, basically, the I'm, I'm, I'm trading information. I'm trading, in some cases, anecdotal information or substantive information. And if uh, I'm considered someone who's credible or, or trustworthy, uh, then a journalist like Seymour Hirsch, who I established a relationship with in 90, 1991, in fact, I remember there was a memorable breakfast I was having with Seymour Hirsch, and he and I was giving him a lot of good information about the, the hearings from inside the hearing room that he was uh, reporting. And finally he said, you know the difference between you and me about Bob Gates? And I said, what's that? And he says, well, you want to keep Bob Gates from becoming the CIA director. I want to put Bob Gates in jail. Now that, that wasn't my goal, but that was Seymour Hersh's uh, goal. So it's really, it's, you've got to establish your credibility, and you do that on the basis of your track record. If you give, if you provide information that proves to be flawed in some way, you've worn out your welcome. It's like any other kind of uh, testimony. Uh, it's your credibility that's important and your reputation that's uh, 
import. Um, the problem with once you're identified as a whistleblower is you even compromise yourself with your own constituency. And I found here is another example of my naivete. In 2004, when John Kerry was running against George W. Bush, I was a big supporter of, uh, of uh, Kerry. I think he would have been a, a very good president of the United States. And the head of the surrogate speakers for Kerry was a man by the name of Joe Wilson, Ambassador Joe Wilson, a name that should be familiar to you, the husband of Valerie Plain. Uh, so I went to Joe, and I said, I'd like to be a surrogate speaker. And I didn't hear back for two or three weeks. So finally, I called him and I said, Joe, what's, what's the problem? Um, uh, there's no role for me as a surrogate speaker? And he says, well, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. When I floated your name before the committee, uh, they said, well, isn't he the whistleblower from 1991? See, once you're a whistleblower, you're identified as someone who might blow the whistle another time. <laughs> so it's, yeah, time out. <laughs> so even the constituency that should have supported me in terms of uh, the progressive candidacy of John Kerry, um, lost interest. I finally got involved in some activities, including one of my own personal highlights, which was taking part in the campaign rally in Cleveland, where I introduced Joe Baez to the audience, which was <laughs> a, a great moment for me. It had nothing to do with intelligence or politics. Uh, but I have a picture from the occasion, and it's something I'll never forget. But, you're stunned. I was stunned to find out how controversial whistleblowing is and how no one wants to deal with you. Either your natural supporters, and certainly you know your, your enemies aren't going to deal with you, uh, but that you wear out your welcome or challenge your welcome with, with your own constituency, that, that, that stunned me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is it going to be a lot harder to be a whistleblower at this stage of our government? Because Donald Trump will just say, fake news. <laughs> you do not have any credibility. NBC is not saying the truth. Or Washington Post is just making news. Isn't it very, very difficult? It's much more difficult, but for for different reasons than the ones you're citing. It's, you know, the fake news problem is a national problem. Donald Trump has done a very good job, I would say a masterful job, he did it during the campaign and he's still doing it, of diverting attention. Um, and I don't know how much of this is planned, I think more than we realize, but with the dog whistles we saw during the campaign, the racial themes that he touched on during the campaign, that he always managed to change the nature of the debate. But that's not the problem. The problem is the government uh, has created what they call an insider threat program in which government uh, officials are being encouraged, in some cases uh, threatened, to report suspicious activity of their colleagues. Uh, you know, 1984 is getting a lot closer uh, than we imagined within uh, the government. Uh, like the poor woman uh, who I think was poorly served, reality winner, remember when she leaked that document from the National Security Agency and the magazine she leaked it to, Intercept, which is edited by Glenn Greenwald, who handled the Edward Snowden case very well and very professionally. 
they really screwed around in winter by sending the document to the National Security Agency to see what they could publish and maybe what they shouldn't publish. And of course, they were able to look at the document and trace it for the microdots, and they knew where the Xeroxing had taken place, and they identified the six people who had used that Xerox, and they nailed her uh, immediately. So the problem is the government is now really sensitive to, to leaking. There's incredible intimidation. Uh, there are people in Washington who don't talk to me anymore because of their libelous see I write for uh, an online journal, Camera Punch. Uh, and they know that uh, I'm not going to identify a source, but I will use material if I collect it uh, legitimately. I feel that's, that's what journalism is all about. And as the national security columnist for this journal, I figure that's, that's what I'm doing. This is legitimate activity. Um, but I'm not breaking any law in doing this. And I think the problem with the Obama administration, and it's continuing, Jeff Sessions has made some very threatening remarks. Uh, but so did Eric Holder for Barack Obama. Look at the way they went after James Risen. And it wasn't until the last minute that Holder dropped the case because he realized it would be so embarrassing to the Obama administration to send one of our most distinguished reporters to jail for just doing his job, which was getting a story on US efforts to contaminate Iran, Iran's nuclear probe. Judy, how are we doing? I think we should uh, maybe just take one more question and then. Yeah. Like you said, when you said when they made threatening, when they threatened people to you know, tell what they know, otherwise they might get locked up or something, right? Well, I think the threat is, is more insidious than that, in that uh, the system is geared to stop leaking in, in a very uh, institutional way. Um, there are briefings at all of the agencies of government now. Uh, General McMaster and I the idea that an active duty general is the national security advisor to the president is a real bother to me. The fact that there's a marine general who's the chief of staff and, and a general who's the secretary of defense is very worrisome uh, to me. But they have made it clear and they have called for, well, two weeks ago, there was basically a government shutdown in the uh, intelligence uh, area. These are 17 different intelligence agencies to get briefed on the danger of leaking. And being alert to those around you who might be leaking material. And I'm not talking about turning Washington into a giant colander that's leaking all sorts of information. I'm talking about what happens when you confront uh, practices that violate law, that involve criminality. Uh, and this this is a real danger. You know, for Trump to be able to fire James Comey. Uh, for the Russian investigation, which uh, he obviously lied about in terms of the motivation for that firing, uh, is very worrisome and sets a precedent for what happens to Robert Mueller when he gets too close to the fire of this particular story. And I think there's too much smoke for there not to be some fire as well. Well, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for the discussion. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it.
podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.